I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World... The 2024 Republican presidential primary debates will begin on Wednesday in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The location is significant because it's where the Republican Party will hold its national convention next July. Brett Baer and Martha McCallum of Fox News will host the debate. All the major Republican candidates will be there except the frontrunner, former President Donald J. Trump. While the debate will be less exciting and less watched without Trump, it is still an important milestone in the evolving presidential nomination campaign of 2024, and Callista and I will be sitting right there watching the debate. And I want to start this podcast by giving you my take on each candidate. You have a lot of candidates out there who are ambitious, eager, smart, hardworking. They all would like to be the alternative to Trump. And so what they're doing Wednesday night is they're auditioning to see whether or not they're the one who emerges. Going into this six months ago, we would all have expected that it was Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida who'd been a very successful governor. Turns out running for president's a lot harder than running for governor. He may not quite be ready to hit major league pitching, which, since he was the captain of the Yale baseball team, I think is an almost funny parallel. And as a result, he has shrunk substantially from the position of being the clear alternative to being the leader among several possible alternatives. So a lot of people practicing, preparing, thinking about this, each of them in their own mind thinking, I could be the one that lightning strikes I could have an opportunity. Chris and I are going to watch the debate in Milwaukee, and we're looking for certain things. I think in DeSantis's case, can he come across as friendly? Can he come across as relatively happy? Can he focus his fire on Trump rather than on the other candidates? 
ultimately that's the person he's going to have to beat to get the nomination. But in addition, can he communicate a positive vision of an American future that makes people want to vote for him to take us to a better place than we are right now? I think that Vice President Pence has to be calmly, steady, and positive, and to the degree he can do it, avoid picking a fight with Donald Trump. Now, Pence was a very loyal vice president. He did a very good job for Trump up until the very end. And he said over and over again what a great administration it was. And in a sense, he has a hard time attacking Trump too hard because he's attacking his own administration. I think in the case of Nikki Haley, it's as important that she focus on the great job she did as a reform governor as that she focus on being ambassador to the United Nations. And again, I think she can focus on China. She can focus on fixing Washington and not spend a whole lot of time either attacking DeSantis or attacking Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, has two missions. One, to prove he can take a punch. Somebody there is going to go at him. There's no doubt in my mind. Somebody, maybe the sledgehammer that the DeSantis memo talked about. What he's got to show, like Reagan, is that he can relax, take the hit, and keep to his feet and stay focused on being positive. Second, he has to show that he knows enough. I mean, he's 38 years old. He's a brilliant entrepreneur. We've done three podcasts with him. I have great respect for him. But he's got to show people that you could trust a 38-year-old entrepreneur who's never been in politics with being commander-in-chief of the most powerful nation in the world. Now, if he crosses that and people start saying, you know, he could really do the job, then I think he could emerge as the primary alternative to Trump. Tim Scott is a wonderful human being, has been a very effective senator, before that a congressman, before that a county commissioner. Everybody agrees he's a very nice man, but people always say that he's not tough enough. You know, being president, you've got to be pretty tough. And I think this will be an interesting moment to see, can he define himself, not necessarily by attacking any of those guys, probably by attacking the Biden administration. Can he define himself as a guy tough enough to be president? I think Chris Christie is virtually hopeless. He is running primarily because he's so bitter at Trump and angry at Trump. You know, that's a pretty thin base for a presidential campaign. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But I think that Christie's in the end not going to last very long because people aren't going to be into an entirely negative anti-Trump candidate. I think Asa Hutchison, candidly, I can't figure out why he's running, but it'll be interesting to see if he can give us a good explanation. I mean, he certainly had a good career. He certainly could focus with knowledge on the border and on the drug crisis that we have. And if he does that, he may penetrate to some extent that he's the guy who could fix the border and knows the most about fixing the border. Governor Burgum of North Dakota, I frankly don't know. He'll be the least known person getting on that stage. He is a billionaire. He has very strong views. I think if he focuses on communicating what he would do to change Washington and what he would do to help America, he'll get much further down the road than if he focuses on either attacking his opponents or on attacking Trump. Each person has a different mission, a different assignment, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it works out. Trump said on Truth Social, quote, the public knows who I am and what a successful presidency I had. I will therefore not be doing the debates. And he's expected to have an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson on X, which was formerly known as Twitter. And I have to confess, I do not understand why Elon Musk has switched it to X, and I don't know what he gains by that.
There's a leaked memo that supposedly was drafted by the heads of the pro-Ron DeSantis super PAC, Never Back Down, which talks about how they think the governor should attack businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. They call for DeSantis to take a sledgehammer to his GOP rival. Ramaswamy, of course, has been really delighted to have that kind of recognition and has been sending out all sorts of emails requesting financial support so he can survive the sledgehammer. It's candidly a little hard for me to believe that that memo is real. I guess it is, but it's so stupid. If DeSantis's future requires attacking Vivek Ramaswamy, it tells you how bad the DeSantis campaign is doing, because in theory, he should be so far ahead as the number two choice after Trump that he couldn't care about Vivek Ramaswamy. Instead, as DeSantis has decayed, Ramaswamy and others have gained ground, and the result is that there are now five or six candidates who are legitimately fighting to be the number two choice after Trump. And, of course, the establishment is desperate to have most of them drop out because the establishment understands that a multi-candidate field absolutely helps Trump because Trump has a base that is huge. That base is not going to go for anybody else. So he's sitting there. Let's say he's in a state where he has 43 or 45 percent, not enough to be a majority in a two-person race. But if the other 50 percent is split up among five or six or seven candidates, Trump's going to look like a giant, and they're all going to look like they're very small. So it's fascinating. And remember, the number one goal of the debate Wednesday night is to do well enough that you attract enough supporters that you begin to be seen as the logical alternative to Trump. The Democrats, of course, are having lots of fun with all this. I think that what you have to recognize is kind of where we are. In the Des Moines Register poll conducted by Jay Ann Seltzer, who is a very famous, very traditional Iowa fixture in polling, Trump's at 42, DeSantis is at 19, Scott's at 9, Nikki Haley's at 6, Mike Pence is at 6, Chris Christie's at 5, and Vivek Ramaswamy's at 4. According to a CBSU Gov poll nationally, Trump's in the lead with 62%, with DeSantis at 16. Ramaswamy, 7, Pence, 5, Scott, 3, Haley, 2, Christie, 2. That's nationally. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. Let me share with you a little bit of my own experiences. First of all, it is true that when we were faced with our first big debate, Clist and I decided to relax. It was an evening debate. We were in Iowa. So we went to our motel room and we watched Bridesmaids. And we laughed and had a Diet Coke. And, you know, my theory was that by the time you get to a presidential debate, you should know what you believe, first of all. And you should know enough facts that you don't need to sit around and cram. And Frank, cramming is bad because then you start trying to remember things. The number one characteristic of winning a debate is authenticity. And I think it's very important to understand that, that if you feel authentic, if people feel they're seeing the real person, you can be a real liberal, you can be a real conservative, as long as you have this sense that, yeah, that's who that person really is. Second is to be likable. The lesson I learned, frankly, from James Carville, the great Democratic consultant, who used to go and give speeches together and We'd have dinner afterwards, and he said to me one night, almost all the audiences that can afford to hire him are Republican. So he knows they're not going to love him. That's not how it's going to happen. But he's not going to change their view on policy because they believe what they believe. What he can do is change their view of him. And so Carville used lots of humor and was very relaxed. And people generally came away thinking, you know, he's not a bad guy. And I learned from that when I was preparing to debate, I really started with the idea, I want to be relaxed. 
I want to look approachable. I want to be happy. It's something I learned from Reagan. Remember when Reagan's attacked by Carter, he smiles and says, there you go again. When he's attacked about his age, he smiles and tells a story. He doesn't get uptight. He doesn't get angry. So we felt that watching Bridesmaids, which we hadn't seen, but all of our friends had told us was hilarious, having a Diet Coke, relaxing, and then going on stage. When you debate, I believe, what you're really looking for is, first of all, don't make a major mistake. Gerald Ford once said in a debate with Carter that the United States did not recognize Soviet control over Poland. Well, that was translated by the press to mean this guy's stupid and doesn't realize that Poland's inside the Soviet empire. That's not what he was saying. What he actually said was technically right. The United States did not recognize that Polish sovereignty had been superseded by the Soviet empire, which is exactly the position we had taken since World War II. But because the press had already decided that Gerald Ford was clumsy and stupid, they interpreted it in a factually false way, but it was devastating for four or five days. He finally had to issue a statement saying to clear it up. So you want to avoid that. You don't want to make a mistake which knocks you out of the race or which significantly weakens you. Second, you want to figure out, are there one or two or at most three, never more than three, places where you can be sufficiently interesting and sufficiently vivid that they will catch it, pick it up, and it'll be in the media the next day. I would say for these candidates, if they say something so good that it makes Fox News the next day and it runs all day on Fox, they've had a good debate. And so you're looking for that one or two or three moments, not more. In addition, if you have a chance, particularly to take on a primary opponent that you think you have to get past, if you have a chance to go straight at them, in a way which puts them on defense and where the audience will applaud you. You don't want to attack somebody in a way that the audience sides with the person you're attacking. You want to attack them in a way that feels clever, feels interesting, that somehow people say, yeah, that's a great point. I actually had one of my greatest, most fun debating moments was at Oxford Union, which is a very famous debating stage in Britain at Oxford University. It's student-run a couple of times a year, they bring in, you know, sort of better known celebrity types. Uh, so they invited me in the late 80s to come and debate the vice president of Nicaragua on the question of whether or not the U.S. policy opposing communism in Central America was the right policy. And of course, he was going to come and defend communism. Well, that was too good an opportunity. And it's such a famous place as a historian to be able to go and debate in one of the great debating centers of the world. So I agreed to go over. And in order to do that, I went to see Chester Gibson, who had been an extraordinarily good debate coach at West Georgia College. This is a good example of preparation. I said, I'm going to be in Britain. He said, the number one thing you need to understand, the British don't care about facts. The British care about humor. So if you go in there and you're deadly serious and you have lots of facts, you're going to bore them. But if you figure out a moment to be very funny you will win the audience. Very different than the American style. So we get over there, and the ground rule is, if you're speaking, we're sitting across from each other with a table in between. And if you're speaking, we had, I guess, 1,200 people watching or something, and the other person stands up, then you have to sit down and allow them to propound a question. Well, they had this really terrific young debater, a student. And I should say, by the way, that when I debated there, 
we had several people. Frank Luntz was on my debate team. He was a student at the time. And Boris Johnson was a graduate student in the audience at the time. We talked about it later. So we're debating, and this really attractive, bright young guy gets up and starts giving a talk. And he's talking about how he'd been to America. He knew America. America was greater than its current policy. He knew America was about wonderful values. America was more than apple pie or baseball or wet t-shirt contest. Well, the second he said that, I just knew there was an opening. So I stood up and he stares at me because he's a student and I'm a principal. He doesn't expect to have, you know, somebody who's a national figure suddenly asking him a question. And the audience starts to giggle and he has to sit down under the rules. I was very slow deliberately. And I said, you know, you're a very, very smart debater. I'm very impressed. And you're very good looking. The audience now is giggling. I said, so I'm very curious. If you think America is not about wet t-shirt contests, how old were you when you were in America? Well, he's totally flustered. The audience starts to chant, answer, answer. It didn't matter what he said. He'd lost. And in fact, for an American defending American policy in Central America, I actually did pretty well against the Nicaraguan vice president. People thought it was quite an interesting event. So using that approach, I once accused Mitt Romney in one of our debates of pious baloney. But I think you'll find it more interesting if I just play the debate scene from January 8th in New Hampshire. I realize the red light doesn't mean anything to you because you're the front runner. <laughs> but, but, but can we drop a little bit of the pious baloney? The fact is, you ran in 94 and lost. That's why you weren't serving the Senate with uh, Rick Santorum. The fact is, you had a very bad re-election rating. You dropped out of office. You had been out of state for something like 200 days preparing to run for president. You didn't have this interlude of, of citizenship while you thought about what to do. You were running for president while you were governor. You were going all over the country. You were, you were out of state consistently. You then promptly re-entered politics. You happened to lose to McCain, as you had lost to Kennedy. Now you're back running. You've been running consistently for years and years and years. So this idea that suddenly citizenship showed up in your mind, just level with the American people. You've been running for at least since the 1990s. So as you can see, I was taking Romney apart, but I started with something funny, pious baloney. So the audience is applauding and they're giving me permission to keep going. One of my, I guess, best-known debate moments in 2012 was with John King, who opens a debate in a very aggressive and very hostile way, and the audience reacts with enormous intensity against him, not against me. So I want you to listen to the entire exchange, because at the time it was quite historic, made a huge impact, and helped me carry the South Carolina primary. As you know, your ex-wife gave an interview to ABC News and another interview at the Washington Post, and this story has now gone viral on the Internet. In it, she says that you came to her in 1999 at a time when you were having an affair. She says you asked her, sir, to enter into an open marriage. Would you like to take some time to respond to that? No, but I will. I think, 
I think the destructive, vicious, negative nature of much of the news media makes it harder to govern this country, harder to attract decent people to run for public office. And I am appalled that you would begin a presidential debate on a topic like that. person in here knows personal pain. Every person in here has had someone close to them go through painful things. To take an ex-wife and make it two days before the primary, a significant question in a presidential campaign, is as close to despicable as anything I can imagine. However, I would say that the debate moment I'm happiest about was Again, in South Carolina, at Myrtle Beach, 3,000 people are in the audience. It's an amphitheater. It literally ramps up, and you're looking up at the top, and here are all these people. And Juan Williams gets into an argument with me about having people work. I had made the comment, which I believe, actually, that in poor neighborhoods, in places like New York, we would be better off if teenagers were paid to help clean up their schools so that they learned the work ethic and so they had money. After all, if you're poor, one of the reasons you're poor is you don't have money. And if you don't have the habit of going to work, you're not going to get money. So all of this comes together. And Juan just went at me. He thought it was terrible. And instead of backing off, I expanded it and came back at him. And I said, you know, I really believe in work. And I think it's important for people to work. Speaker Gingrich, you recently said black Americans should demand jobs, not food stamps. You also said poor kids lack a strong work ethic and proposed having them work as janitors in their schools. Can't you see that this is viewed at a minimum as insulting to all Americans, but particularly to black Americans? No, I don't see that. Jackie, who's sitting back there, Jackie Cushman, reminded me that her first job was at First Baptist Church in Carrollton, Georgia, doing janitorial work at 13. And she liked earning the money. She liked learning that if you worked, you got paid. She liked being in charge of her own money. And she thought it was a good start. Well, at that point, all of a sudden, starting at the very back, we got a standing ovation from 3,000 people. It was, to me, one of the most amazing moments that I could imagine. I really think that it was something that reminded everybody that the fact is that we have, without any question, a deep American commitment to work ethic. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, modern presidential debating, which really is coincidental with the rise of television, goes back to 1960. Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. Nixon was the incumbent vice president with President Eisenhower. Kennedy was a rising U.S. senator. It was really interesting that Nixon agreed, because he didn't have to agree, to debate Kennedy. And the result was Nixon, who represented a much weaker Republican Party coming out of the Great Depression, felt, I think, that he had to reach way beyond Republicans. Kennedy had enormous confidence in his own abilities and in his ability as a debater. Ironically, if you heard the first Nixon-Kennedy debate in 1960, and you heard it on radio, you thought Nixon had won. However, if you saw it on television, and that was a much bigger audience, you thought John F. Kennedy had won. The difference was Kennedy understood and had friends in the movie industry, and he understood how to communicate visually, and so he had makeup. Nixon, who had sort of contempt for that stuff and thought it was all about being rational and a good debater in the classic sense, didn't have makeup. The result was that Nixon just looked pale under the television lights, and so he looked like he was on defense, even though If you just heard the audio version, he clearly sounded 
more competent, more in command, had more facts. It's a fascinating moment. The election was extraordinarily close, and I think you could argue that Kennedy's performance in the first debate made the difference. Kennedy had become a master of using television, and since I was a very young activist at that time, the Nixon Lodge campaign was really my first personal volunteering. I watched intently how Kennedy used television, how he understood it, and how it was very favorable to him. Unfortunately for his successor after Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson didn't understand television, wasn't particularly good at it, didn't come across well, and the media, which loved John F. Kennedy, thought that they literally were in Camelot, which was a very popular musical at the time, did not like Lyndon Johnson. And so Johnson had a much tougher time, a more difficult time communicating. We really didn't get around to big debates again until you had Gerald Ford debating Jimmy Carter. And that had a very funny moment because the equipment broke. And for something like 10 or 12 minutes, they stood there. I mean, here are the two guys campaigning to be commander-in-chief of the most powerful country in the world. And they're hostages on stage waiting for the technicians to fix the TV stuff so that they could communicate with the country. It was a remarkable and bizarre moment. When you got to the 1980 campaign, the fact was that Ronald Reagan only debated Jimmy Carter once. He was late in the campaign. Carter had a style, which he'd learned as a Georgia populist, of grossly exaggerating and then getting you sucked into a fight where you're defending against his exaggerations. Reagan knew this, and Reagan developed, I think, one of the most interesting and simple responses I'd ever seen. Every time Carter would lie about Reagan, Reagan would just smile and say, there you go again. And he communicated in a pleasant way to the country, this guy's lying, this is not true. They'd been in a very, very close race until the morning after the debate. After that debate, people concluded that Ronald Reagan could be trusted with nuclear weapons. He could be trusted to be commander-in-chief and that Jimmy Carter had a pretty pathetic argument that wasn't true. The result was Reagan carried a bigger electoral vote majority against an incumbent president than anyone else in history before or since. It was an amazing moment. In 1984, this great moment, which I've learned from the people who were directly involved, Roger Ailes had been brought in. Reagan, in the first debate, ended up running short. They'd been talking too long and they didn't have enough time at the very end. Reagan had prepared for the agreed upon four or five minute close. He had a brilliant close. Unfortunately, they only had two minutes each because they'd run over with their answers in the earlier questions. Reagan, instead of making up on the cuff two minutes, which he could have done, decided he really wanted to edit in his own mind while he was talking this brilliant talk. And he looked like he was clumsy. In fact, all of us who now watch Joe Biden can sympathize with this because all of a sudden people thought, oh my gosh, is he beyond it? Has he got cognitive problems? Is he over the hill? Well, the Reagan people were very worried. I was campaigning for re-election. I was very strongly for Reagan. And it was interesting to watch. Nobody actually switched from Reagan to Walter Mondale because Reagan did badly. They just said, boy, we sure hope our team does better next time. When you got to the second debate, they brought in Roger Ailes to help coach Reagan. Ailes had 
coached Nixon in the 60s and had a reputation of having done the Mike Douglas show. People thought Ailes was really good with television. So they brought Roger in and they said to him, we want you to sit in this final preparation for the debate, but do not raise the age issue. We don't want the president to be uncomfortable or nervous. We want him to feel calm. So they get in the meeting. They go through all the standard stuff. And at the very end, Reagan looks directly at Ailes. This is Ailes' version, which he told me personally. Looks directly at Ailes and says, well, Roger, is there anything else I should know? And Ailes thought to himself, this guy is the president of the United States. He deserves to know what the real problem is. So he said, well, Mr. President, you know there's one question everyone is going to be asking when you walk on that stage. And Reagan said, well, what's that, Roger? Ailes said, they're going to wonder if you've lost it, if you're too old, because of the way the last debate ended. And Reagan looked at him for a second, didn't say anything for about 10 seconds. And he got a big smile. He said, you know, I know exactly how to handle this. I used to do a shtick in Las Vegas. He was there for about two weeks doing stand-up comedy and decided he didn't like it, so he quit. He said, but I, I know how to handle it. Well, when Callista and I made the movie, Rendezvous with Destiny, which is the biography of Reagan, we have this scene from the second debate. The debate opens. The very first question, as you would expect, is, you know, Mr. President, people are worried about this age issue. Reagan looks straight into the camera with a twinkle and he says, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Well, everybody breaks up laughing, including, and you see it in the film, Walter Mondale. And Mondale's standing there, and you can see in his eyes, he knows the election just ended because the Reagan debate answer was so strong. There have been moments when debates have meant a great deal. I would argue that in 2012, Mitt Romney had a great opportunity in debating Barack Obama. Obama was totally wrong on Russia, and Romney was going right at him. But the CNN anchor, who was the host of the evening, disagreed with Romney and sided with Obama. Well, Romney was clearly just totally befuddled because he was being a gentleman he was being reasonable, and in effect, he just collapsed. Now, the reason that was important was, had Romney turned to her and said, you are not allowed to be in the middle of this debate, and it's not your place to describe Russia, he would have won the debate, because people were sick and tired of reporters and news media imposing their own views. But Romney whether it was a matter of skill or nerve or attitude, he allowed her to dominate. The country watched her dominate, and as a result, he lost. A similar thing had happened actually in 1980, when in the New Hampshire debate with the Republicans, Reagan had wanted all the candidates there. Bush wanted it to be one-on-one. -on -one. George H.W. Bush was running against him. So there was this big fight. Reagan brought all the other candidates with him, and the moderator said, well, you know, we're only going to have two. And Reagan suddenly stood up and he said, Mr. Green, the guy's name was actually Breen, but being Reagan, he's close. He said, Mr. Green, 
I paid for this microphone, and we are going to have everyone. Well, that decisive moment of leadership, that cutting through the baloney, that standing up to the reporter, ended the New Hampshire primary. Reagan won, Bush lost, and the rest was history. So these debates can have an important and a significant impact. I think in the Clinton-Trump debate, the key moment when it's clear that there had been a very embarrassing tape released about some of the things Trump had said about women. It was clear that the press was going to go after him. And so for the last debate, he just escalated the risk and brought all four of the women who had made accusations against Bill Clinton and had a press conference before the debate with all four women. Of course, at that moment, what are the Clintons going to do? They're not going to touch it. And so their whole strategy collapsed. And it was an act of both extraordinary courage and extraordinary aggressiveness on Trump's part. And it worked. I think part of what hurt him in the 2020 debates was that not only was the press totally on the side of Biden, not only were 51 intelligence officials signing a letter that was a lie about Hunter Biden's laptop, not only was the debate stage set in such a way that Trump was basically contained. Frankly, I think in 16, he would have broken out. But he'd been through COVID. He'd been through four years as president. He'd been through getting beaten up in a variety of ways that turned out to be totally false. Russian collusion is an example. And I think he didn't quite have the energy and the decisiveness to cut through. And yet we now know every single thing they said was a lie. And the 51 intelligence officers, in fact, were lying. The Hunter Biden laptop was real. The things that Trump was charging Biden with were true, in fact, to such a degree that recently Jake Tapper of CNN said, you know, the fact is Trump was right about Biden. Well, that is a staggering admission on a network that has been historically totally anti-Trump. So now we come to this year. And I think it's important to think about the candidates and what their situation is. First of all, the fact that Trump is not there is irrelevant because Trump will be there. Mark Halperin, in his terrific Wide World of News, which I recommend to everyone, the best single newsletter on politics, I read it every day. Halperin said, in the entire Meet the Press interview, Chuck Todd, questioning presidential candidate Doug Burgum, who was the governor of North Dakota, eight of the nine questions were about Trump. Burgum kept saying, I want to talk about my ideas. I want to talk about my proposals. Chuck Todd just ran straight over it. So even though Trump wasn't on the program, on eight out of nine questions, Trump was the program. And it'll be very interesting to see whether or not Bayer and McCallum can resist making the entire debate about Trump. And there's certainly enough different questions you could make the debate about Trump. I am sure that Trump is counting on the fact that he'll get a double win. He won't be there, but he'll come up over and over and over again. Meanwhile, he will be off with Tucker Carlson doing a special one hour And it'll be interesting to see what the relative ratings of the two are. Of course, that's all heightened because Trump is going to go to Fulton County, Georgia the next day and apparently have a mugshot. I mean, the district attorney in Fulton County is doing everything she can as a radical left-wing hack to go after Trump. And so, again, you're going to have Trump going to Fulton County will simply drown the debate coverage. It's a really strange kind of situation. Thank you for listening. 
You can read my debate commentary at Gingrich360.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garzi Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.